Jesus, we together say, as we always do, that all of our hope is in you. We trust you, and we rejoice in the fact that you know all these things. The church is yours. We are yours. Indeed, all the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains. I, uh, I thank you, Lord, for a church that prays. What a beautiful sound to hear your saints praying. Your word even tells us that the prayers of the saints are like golden bowls full of incense before you, pleasing in their aroma before you. We thank you, God, that as we pray, you hear and you know all these things and that, Jesus, you are, always have been and always will be faithful to your church and your purposes for the glory of your name. Your will be done. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Good job, church. Thank you for praying. Uh, Let's get into the Bible now. We are in Acts chapter 3 together. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we're looking at verses 11 through 26. I was down at uh, Reality LA last Sunday. It was awesome to visit them. It was great to see that church doing so well in that city. Uh, It's part of my responsibilities is to go to the other churches and visit them and preach there on occasion. I'll be up at uh, San Francisco this week doing some work with them. I'll be preaching there later uh, next month. So I, I appreciate you guys being cool and me being gone doing that for the Reality Family of Churches. Of course, we had Travis here teaching and he did a wonderful job. I listened to that sermon. I was greatly encouraged by it and happy to follow it up with the rest of the text. The title of the sermon is How to Experience Refreshing and Blessing. You remember that last week, Peter and John heal a man who had been lame from birth in the name of Jesus. This man who all the time had begged at the gate called Beautiful, this certain entrance to the sanctuary in the temple there, where we know Jesus had passed through several times. And if that man begged there all the time, he had seen Jesus. So he probably wasn't that surprised when Peter and John invoked the name of Jesus. It was interesting that it happened during the three o'clock prayer meeting, the afternoon prayer meeting. So the temple courts were crowded. There are lots of people that witnessed it saw the miracle, saw what Jesus did for this man. They were filled with wonder and amazement. And that's where we pick up the text today. So we're looking at verses 11 through 26. We'll read that, but let's just back up into verse 6 just to get the full picture. We'll read 6 through 26, and then we'll get into it. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 6, the NIV says, Then Peter said, Silver or gold have I not, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, verse 11, our text for today. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. 
you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, that is Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for your wonderful word, Lord. We pray that as it reverberates through the air this morning as we read it, it would also reverberate in our hearts and minds and do a wonderful work in us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to comprehend. Give us wills that are resolved to obey you and to bring glory to your name. Call us to a higher place for the glory of Jesus. Speak to each one of us. You know us, you know our hearts, and you love us still. You've got good things in store for us. Teach us and lead us for our good and your glory. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here's the way I want to approach the text this morning. I want us to notice three things in particular. I want us to notice, number one, what Peter did in response to this miracle. I want us to notice, number two, what the healed man did not do in response to this miracle. And I want us to notice, number three, what the crowds discovered as they responded to this miracle. So let's look first at what Peter did. What Peter did. Now, the people began to do, as they saw this thing happen, what people always do, which is to make a big deal about other people that do cool things. The people began to do what people always do, which is make a big deal about other people that were doing cool things. We love that. That's why we have Instagram accounts and all these other things. We post all the cool things that we're doing so that people can make a big deal about us doing cool things. Our whole culture is based on that and the fact that it works. And so the people started to do what people did. They made a big deal about Peter and John. But notice what Peter does. It was countercultural then and it's countercultural now. Peter deflects the glory. Peter doesn't receive the glory. He doesn't bask in the glory. He doesn't rejoice over how many likes he got or retweets or new follows. 
He deflects the glory and he draws attention to Jesus. Peter deflects the glory and draws attention to in order to give the glory to Jesus. Just review that starting in verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does it surprise you? And why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, this is profound for Peter, because what did Peter used to do? Peter used to argue with James and John and Matthew and Thaddeus and Judas and all the other disciples about who was the greatest. Remember that? We see that all over the gospel. Several times, Jesus busts them arguing about who is the greatest among the disciples and in the kingdom. This is a big change for Peter. In the shadow of the cross and under the sway of Pentecost, we see a different Peter. He was quick now to deflect the glory to direct attention to, and to give the glory to Jesus. Peter admits, he says explicitly, that this miracle was not about his own power or his own godliness. Now that would have been a real temptation for him or for anyone. We all have these deep needs to be recognized, to be adored, to be applauded, right? We, we all have these things in us. Therefore, it is always a deep temptation for us to take some of the glory and some of the credit. Peter says, this wasn't my power and it wasn't my godliness. You know, in the godliness part in, in religious Jerusalem, that would have been a real temptation because it was like a, a godliness competition all the time amongst the Jews. Peter says, this isn't about me, it's about Jesus. I love here in the shadow of the cross and under the sway of Pentecost, this new, better Peter, this humble Peter, recalling to mind for sure, because he would have quoted it from elsewhere in scripture in his first epistle, in 1 Peter chapter five, where it says that God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Peter would have perhaps taken his cue from John the Baptist, whom he may have witnessed when John the Baptist said about Jesus, I must decrease and he must increase. John 3.30, I think. John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. Now here is the right stance of Christianity, of Christians in the shadow of the cross and under the sway of Pentecost. We are to decrease, humble ourselves that Jesus and his glory might increase in our midst. And I would argue that there's like this, like this exchange that happens. The more that we make ourselves humble under the mighty hand of God, the more he's exalted in our lives and so in our families and so in our community. This is a cognizant thing that Peter is doing here. There's intentionality here. Peter is being faithful. Faithful. Can everybody say faithful? Faithful. Listen, man, as I get older, I just turned 46. 
That is my main goal in life. I just want to be faithful all the way to the end until the Lord comes or I kick the bucket, whatever comes first. I just want to be faithful to Jesus to the very end. My goodness, we made it this far. Let's go all the way to the end. I want to be faithful to Jesus to the end. And Peter's being faithful right here. He's not missing the opportunity. He's not laying hold of the opportunity for himself. He's not botching the opportunity up, though Peter had a long history of botching stuff up. Peter is just humbly being faithful. And he faithfully reveals the source of this power and this grace as being Jesus. Verse 16, he says it explicitly. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you all can see. Now, Travis taught us last week, and rightly so, that miracles are meant to be signs, not merely events in and of themselves. Signs that point to something, right? What, what do signs do? They point to something. Like when you're driving into Carpinteria, there's a sign that says, welcome to the promised land. It points to the fact that you have arrived in paradise here in Carpinteria. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> signs point to something else. And, and when you get to the sign, you haven't arrived, right? The sign, it's always beyond the sign. You haven't arrived when you get to the sign. You got to go to what the sign is pointing to. So we haven't arrived if we're seeing miracles. So that's like a goal. We want more miracles, more healings, more of this power of Jesus stuff happening in our church. But that's not the goal. That's a goal, but we haven't arrived if people are getting healed. We arrive when Jesus is most glorified. Signs that point to Jesus because he's the one who does the healing. He's better than the healing, right? He's the giver. Not merely are we seeking after the gifts, as Travis said last week. Signs that point to Jesus. Now, Peter and John did have to have faith and exercise faith. But it wasn't faith in themselves, right? Or their own merit. And it wasn't faith in faith itself. I was watching Peter Pan yesterday with Fifi. My wife was out of town. She was teaching at a women's conference up in Santa Cruz. So I was doing what dads do when dads have the four-year-old to watch a movie. So we were watching Peter Pan. And you remember that scene where Peter Pan is teaching Wendy and the other kids. Is that her name, Wendy, the older sister? Wendy and the kids to fly in their bedroom that night before they leave for Never Never Land or wherever they're going. Was that what it's called, Never Never Land? I wasn't paying a lot of attention, <laughs> really. Peter Pan's seen it a million times. But, you know, they're trying to fly and they can't really fly. And Peter Pan says, what's the problem? It's so easy. You just got to have faith. Well, Peter Pan is stupid. <laughs> just faith, faith in what? What are, you, what, are you, what are you saying? Just have faith. Right? This is not a movie about God, in case you don't know Peter Pan. So he's not talking about having faith in God. What's he talking about? What is this generic, you just got to have faith? That's nothing. Faith in what? That didn't mean anything. That actually didn't help them. It wasn't until he shook Tinkerbell and they got the pixie dust that they could fly. So this generic faith did nothing for them. 
Peter didn't have faith in himself. He didn't have faith in his own merit before God or his godliness. And he didn't have faith in, its, in faith itself or some unseen forth. His faith was in Jesus. He says, faith in the name of Jesus. As Travis taught us last week, the name of Jesus is this representative phrase for all of who Jesus is and all of his work and what he represents. When we talk about the name in biblical mindset, we're talking about all that that person is, right? That's why we sing, he's the name above all names, right? We sing that song, name above all names. Who he is, is above everybody else and who they are. Faith in Jesus, who he is and what he has done is what Peter's talking about in verse 16. So Peter does well and acts faithfully in in directing people's attention to Jesus. But I want you to notice, Peter does not go on with some generic musings about Jesus. Rather, he takes his friends, his audience, the people there, directly to the cross. He's not talking about Jesus in generic terms. Peter is talking about the cross of Christ. Notice, the miracles were a signpost. He didn't spend a lot of time talking about the miracle, right? He wasn't like, oh, dude, that's nothing. You should have seen this one time when, right? He didn't make it about the miracles. He makes it about Jesus, but not anything generic about Jesus. He makes it about the cross of Jesus, right? Because the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the central main things, Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul writes and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I'm talking about the gospel, we're talking about the good news, about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that because there is power in that. This is why Peter, as we'll see in the text, goes to the cross. He's going to talk about the cross and the fact that they nailed him to the cross. He's going to make this whole thing all about the cross. He does so because there is power in the message about the cross. Like real power, otherworldly power in the message of the cross. Paul was convinced about this when he went to the city of Corinth, which was a very sophisticated city with a hugely perverted religious and cultural system. When he went there, here's what he said. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul went to this very sophisticated place and said, I didn't come in and try to talk in sophisticated language with all these high ideals and all these highfalutin things. He said, I just came in and told you about the cross of Jesus Christ. I didn't want to talk about anything else. Now, why was that Paul's stance? Why is that what Peter is, what Peter is doing here? Because there is power in the truth about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in the book of Acts, we've been talking a lot about being witnesses, right? The whole book of Acts is about how the early church became witnesses of Jesus Christ. And sometimes, you know, as we've been having conversations with each other and stuff, we can get overwhelmed at the thought of what does it mean to be a witness for Jesus? Like, what do I do and what do I say and how do I approach it? And what about all these arguments and these counter arguments? 
I believe a couple things. I believe, number one, that in the same way that the power of Jesus was at work in this community in the book of Acts, the power of Jesus is at work in our community now. Jesus is at work in our community now. And Jesus' work will always give us an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And when we talk about Jesus, if we just want to simplify it, we ought to just talk about the message of the cross, like Paul did, like Peter is doing here. Do what Peter did. Wow, look at God at work there. Let me tell you about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's so old school. But it's so right. There is real power in the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. But I know how it is. You know, our, our culture makes us feel like inadequate in talking about these things and stupid in talking about these things. Nobody in the world wants us to talk about these things. But we got to talk about these things. In later chapters, the apostles will get pressured not to talk about these things. And they'll say, well, listen, should we listen to you guys telling us not to talk about this? Or should we keep talking about what we've seen and heard in Jesus? There's real pressure to not talk about these things. And then we're made to feel inadequate with the complexity of our culture. But listen, don't forget Peter and the disciples, they in and of themselves were ill-prepared and inadequate. Let's not forget the disciples in the Gospels. And yet, they are living in the shadow of the cross and under the sway of Pentecost. In light of the risen Lord and the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, there's real power in what they're doing. It's not in and of themselves. There's real power in what Peter was doing. He was acting faithfully. Please, God, make us a faithful people in this community. Please, God, work so powerfully in our community that we would have opportunity to speak about Jesus. Please, God, save us from speaking about Jesus in abstract, generic terms and make us bold with the truth of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. So that's what Peter did. Now let's look at what the healed man did not do. Let's look again at verses 8 through 11 to get the picture because it's an amazing picture. It says about the man in verse 8, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping. Isn't that beautiful? He was crippled before. Now he's not just walking, he's jumping. He's like testing it out. And praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who, had been, who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. While the man held on to Peter and John, verse 11, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, between verse 10 and 11, something happens that we're not told here. Because you remember, they went through the gate beautiful. They're going to the afternoon prayer meeting. That means they enter into the sanctuary area. The man is healed there and he follows them. And that's where he's jumping and leaping and walking and praising God. And then it says in verse 11 that all the people ran to Peter and John and the guy out at Solomon's colonnade. 
So what that tells us is that they departed the sanctuary at some point with the dude and they went out to this area that was across the court of the Gentiles, out through the gate beautiful where they first came in and the guy was healed. They went back out through the gate across the court of Gentiles into this area called Solomon's Porch. Church history tells us that the church used to gather there quite a bit and do teachings and hang out, so on and so forth. So they went past the gate beautiful where the man was healed. They go to Solomon's porch. That's where everyone runs to them. I want you to notice what the man is doing. The man stuck with Peter and John. He walked past the place where he used to beg and he went to a new place with them. The man, having been touched by the power of God, is now walking to a new place with the people of God. The man, having been touched by the power of God, is now going to a new place with the people of God. Here is what the man did not do. He did not return to his former space, place, and way of life. He did not say to Peter and John, thank you so much for everything, guys. I'm going back now to my old way of existence. I liked my lame, constricted, and crippled place of need. He didn't do that. He didn't get to the gate where he used to live in that way that he's been delivered from and stop there and reconsider and go back to that place. He'd been there for years. He didn't go back to that place. He went to a new place because that would be stupid to go back to that place. If we read the story and it's like, so Peter and John left and the guy didn't follow them. He got to the gate beautiful and he's like, oh, my old mat, my old spot, my little begging cup. I'm gonna settle back into this place of lameness. We'd be like, this is ridiculous. And yet, how often do we do that? God's people have always struggled with that. You remember the Exodus? God delivered his people from slavery to Egypt. And at one point, Israel complained and said, you know, we had such nice food in Egypt. The garlic and the leeks. Life was so much easier there. And they literally considered going back to the place of slavery. We read that and we say, that's ridiculous. And so it is. This man, having been touched by the power of God, is now sticking with the people of God and going to a new place. He's not going back to his old place. And let this man and his previous crippled condition be a picture of the life of sin. Let it be a picture, a metaphor for that. Every day the man had previously found himself constricted, afflicted, and needy. After he was touched by the power of Jesus, he was liberated, light, and happy. See the juxtaposition and don't let the power of it be lost on you. The man having been touched by the power of God is now walking with the people of God to a new place and he's not returning to his former way of life. He walked right past it and away from it. And we were once all beggars made lame by and impoverished by sin in our lives. 
but we have been healed by and set free by the power of Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. So we don't go back to our former way of life. That's the deal. We go forward as the people of God with the people of God, away from the way that we used to live. It is the metaphor of the exodus, come out from, delivered from, and go to a new place into God's promises. Please, God, help us not to go back to our old ways. Please, God, deliver us and heal us from our backsliding ways. Please, God, teach us as a people of God to stick with one another and go forward into the promises of God. And the sight of this transformed man walking away from his old place in life drew a crowd. Notice it says in verse 11, and the crowd ran to Peter and John and the man is there at Solomon's portico. The picture of the backside of this man walking away from his place of destitute, brokenness, lame, poverty, into a new place where the people have got attracted a crowd. Now let's see what the crowds discovered as they ran out to the porch to meet them. What the crowds discovered, our final point. I'll set it up by saying this. The cross of Christ, remember Peter's going to make it about the cross, only, always, ever proves us to be guilty of sin. Look at the way Peter sets it up for them as we pick up the story in verse 13. Peter speaking says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now look what Peter says. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and ask that a murderer be released to you. Remember, they called out for Barabbas. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. Pause right there. Oh my goodness, Pete. Pete's going for the juggler. What a nasty phrase Pete comes up with on the spot. You killed the author of life. You could feel the tension on Solomon's porch. Four times, Peter says to them, you, 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 as it pertains to the cross. We get the point, Pete. Their crime was immense as they had been calling out before Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, as they had conspired against him with the Romans. When Pilate was willing to release him, they said, don't release him, we'll take Barabbas again. Or instead, excuse me. Their crime was immense, their guilt was enormous. But we need to see ourselves, all of humanity, in the use. Because their guilt was a particular sort of guilt, but it was really no more than ours. Because Jesus went to the cross for our sin, the Bible teaches. Jesus died and bled for our sin. So in the same way that they were culpable in the cross of Christ, we have a certain culpability. Jesus was crucified for our sins. God did it and provided it this way because he loves us, but for our sins, Christ went to the cross. And additionally, any rejection 
of Jesus at any time throughout all of history bears the same culpability as this one. The point is that the fact of the cross illuminates the fact of our guilt. Now, that is key to witness. We're talking about being witnesses, right? We're talking about wanting to be faithful like Peter was faithful. We're talking about wanting our lives to draw a crowd who are curious about Jesus, like the man walking away from his past. And Peter teaches us here that a faithful part of witness is to call it out like it is. To call sin, sin. Peter said, you. And it was nasty. It wasn't generic, right? He wasn't like, you know, guys, I mean, you've been kind of naughty and we all been a little bit naughty and we're all naughty together. But he was like laying it on hot and heavy and nasty. Now, our culture doesn't want us to do this. This is not politically correct, right? People are happy to hear about Jesus as long as you don't talk about their sin. Do you ever notice that? But ain't nothing to talk about if we're not going to talk about sin. Because the main thing we're going to talk about is the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus go to the cross? For our sin. That he might pay the price for our sins and we might be forgiven of our sins. Right? The whole cross is predicated upon the fact that we as humanity have sinned against God and we will be held accountable by God on the day of judgment. But God loves us, so he provided a way for us to escape judgment by his son Jesus paying the price for our sins on the cross. So we've got to repent of our sins, put our faith in Jesus, and be forgiven of our sins. But, but sin is a key component to the witness. Our culture doesn't want to hear about it, though. I heard in our church about one woman who was invited to our Easter service who used to go to church here. Doesn't go to church anymore. And she was invited to the Easter service and she's got kids and she says, I don't want to go. I don't want my kids exposed to that message. I don't want my kids to be told that they're sinners. Not an uncommon sentiment in our culture. But that is the message. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Peter was faithful enough. In awe of the resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life to simply call sin like it was. In particular, what theirs was. In order that they might be saved because God loved them. Please God, Please, God, make us your people, a people that are not afraid to talk about truth in our culture. But Peter now, as a faithful witness, does not leave them there. What if Peter, after saying you four times, just like dropped the mic and walked out? You nailed them. You killed the author of life. Peace. That would not be a faithful witness. Peter does not leave them there. He lands the plane by saying, but God, right? Verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. This is what you did, but this is what God has done. 
That's the good news. The good news is that we have all sinned against God, but God loves us and gave his son to pay the price for our sins on the cross and rose him from the dead that we might have new life. Peter was a faithful witness because he didn't leave them in the sin conversation. He moved them to the but God conversation. This is what you have done, but this is what God has done for you. God raised him from the dead. The basis for our salvation. So we see Peter talking about the guilt of humanity, not shying away from it. Talking about the intervention of God, because that's where the good news is found. And grounding all of it in the testimony of Scripture. That's what Peter does. He grounds it all in the testimony of Scripture. Let's pick it up now in verse 17. He says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Let's move now to verse 21. We'll come back to 1920. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Quotation from uh, Genesis. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. And he continues. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Now I want you to notice what Peter is doing here. Peter is grounding his claims about what they had done, their sin, and what God has done, the cross of Christ and his resurrection, in the Bible. Everything that he talks about there is from the Old Testament. When he's talking about the holy prophets, when he's talking about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, when he's talking about Moses and Moses saying that there would be another prophet, a prophecy about the Messiah, all of that stuff was from their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. This is a great template for witness telling people what we have done telling people what God has done and basing it on what the Bible says not only did the miraculous sign of the guy being healed point to Jesus but Peter is very quick to say that the Bible also points to Jesus Again, we don't find the miracle being the point in and of itself. Yes, the miracle, okay, look, you guys are interested in Jesus. Let me tell you what you've done, but let me tell you the good news about what God has done. But I'm telling you all of this because this is what the Bible says. Peter was so old school, I love it. To reject Jesus and his work and to reject scripture is to reject thousands of years of history in his word. To reject Jesus in the Bible, you had better have some astounding, time-enduring evidence to do so. Because the Bible, as God's book, has stood the test of time. Now let me tell you something about the Bible. The Bible does not so much need to be defended as it needs to be proclaimed. And I would think we would find ourselves having to do less defending of the Bible if we did more proclaiming of the Bible. Because there's power in the Word of God. It's living and active. It doesn't return void without accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent forth. It is the very true, powerful, living Word of God. 
What the Bible needs is to be proclaimed more than it needs to be defended. Listen, you will be old and gone and dust and gone and the Bible will still stand. The Bible needs to be proclaimed in what it says as what it is, God's word. Then we might find ourselves having to defend it less if we proclaimed it more. That's my contention. Do you guys remember Easter? How many of you guys were at Easter at the high school? Did you notice? How do I say it? Did you notice the simplicity of the message that we preached that day? All we said is what the Bible said. And to back it up, we said, because the Bible says so. You notice how many times I said, the Bible says, and we would just read, you know, Jesus was in the grave. And then he rose from the dead. Because the Bible says so. I talked to a guy surfing the other day who was there at Easter. doesn't come to this church. I don't know where he's at with the Lord, but he was there. I noticed him in the crowd. And he paddled up to me and he said, that was such a powerful, didn't know what to call it. You know how they never know how to call it when they don't normally go to church? It's totally cool. I love that. He's like, what is it called? I was like, yeah, sermon, message. He's like, yes, that was so powerful. That was so meaningful. But did you notice how we really didn't say anything? We just read the text and says, the text says, the Bible says that Jesus died for your sins and then rose again. So you should repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and be born again. The Bible says so. Billy Graham, Billy Graham. Went home to be with Jesus recently. Dude, Billy Graham didn't never do nothing but say the Bible says. Preach the gospel to more people than anybody in the history of the world. At one point in his Christian life and in his career, he was confronted with some arguments about the validity of the Bible. And one of his close friends had been swayed by these arguments and moved away from trusting in scriptures, the inerrant word of God. And Billy Graham had a moment where he made the decision, I'm going to believe the Bible to be God's very word and I'm going to preach it as such. And the results speak for themselves. There's power in the Bible. Don't worry about defending it. Get busy proclaiming it. There's power in the Bible. Test it and see. Go start preaching the Bible with authority and the power of the Spirit under the authority of the Word and see if God doesn't work in that. This is what the crowd heard from Peter. What they had done, what God had done, based on what the Bible had said. I want you to see what they discovered in that. And here's where we're in. Verse 19, I told you we'd go back. Verse 19, Peter said to them, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. Now look at verse 26. The final thing he says, when God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Peter had called them out 
on their culpability as it pertains to the cross, their sin very clearly, you, 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 four times. Now he says you, 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 by telling them again what God wants to do for them, that God had sent the Messiah to them. These promises were for them. I'm sure there was a moment where they thought perhaps they were outside of the work of the cross and the promises of the Messiah because of their great sin. But Peter reveals that no one, even those who shout to crucify him, are outside, is outside of the grace of God. Peter says the Messiah, Jesus, and his work were for you. Don't let the kindness of God be lost on you. God is kind and merciful and compassionate and infinitely so. And so as bad as we may ever understand ourselves to be, God's work through Jesus is for you. It is for us. Romans 5.8 says, God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no point where God said, listen, I'll give my son to die for you, but you better be a little better first. I'm gonna send Jesus for you, but you better clean up your gig first. God demonstrated his love for us, his kindness, his mercy, his compassion. And that while we were yet sinners still sinning, Christ died for us. The kindness of God is being explained to them. God was offering to these people in their guilt, he was offering them refreshment and blessing. You notice those two words? Verse 19, verse 26, refreshment and blessing. By wiping out their sins, he says refreshment would come. And by turning from their wicked ways, blessing would come. Jesus wants to bring into the world, into all of our lives, refreshing and blessing. By saving us from the penalty, the guilt, the weight, the shame of our sin, and from the power of our sin. Sin is powerful in that it always promises good. Do this, you'll be happier. Do this, you'll be richer. Do this, you'll be more powerful. Do that, you'll be more satisfied. It always promises. And there's real power in that seduction. But it never delivers. It leaves us lame, crippled, spiritual beggars, impoverished on the outside, wishing we could be on the inside of God's promises. Sin always promises, but it never delivers. It always curses and leaves us in our lives weary. But in Jesus, God promises blessing and refreshment. And the principle that I think we need to get here for our lives is no repentance, no refreshing, no turning from wickedness, no blessing. What he said they needed to do was repent and turn to God. Repentance, metanoia in the Greek. It means a change of mind. Peter was telling them to change their mind about their sin and the work of God. According to what they had done, what God had done for them and what the Bible said, repent. It means to change your mind and subsequently change your actions. He said, repent and turn to God. Change your mind about your sin, about what Jesus has done for you, about what the Bible has told you. Change your mind about it and turn to God. And then he promises that refreshment would come into their lives because the weight of sin would be removed and the power of sin would be broken. 
because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that, the scriptures promise, has a refreshing effect in our lives. Can I get a witness? But we think that if we go our own way, we will discover some sort of refreshment. But we discover that our own way and our own sin leaves us weary and feeling cursed. But God has a way for us to discover refreshment and blessing. Repenting of our sins is refreshing, Peter said. So repentance is a good word, a beautiful word, an awesome word, a wonderful word. Because repentance means refreshing through the forgiveness of sins. And turning from our wicked ways is a blessing. We think that God is a cosmic killjoy. That he wants us to turn from our ways so that we'll have less fun and less stuff and less opportunity. Dude, that ain't true. The Bible says that Jesus was sent to us to bless us by turning us from our wicked ways because sin always, ever, only destroys. No one will get to the end and say, you know what? Sin blessed me. It ain't gonna happen. No one... Kind of just dawning on me, dude. No one's going to say that. No one's going to get to the end of their life, be on their deathbed and say, sin really blessed me. It just ain't going to happen because it's not the truth. Jesus came to bless us by turning us from our wicked ways toward following him and the forgiveness of sins. And wherever on a broad scope, maybe today you're here and you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, be forgiven of your sins. Wherever we are in life on a broad scope or a smaller scope as Christians struggling through this world trying to follow Jesus, wherever we refuse to repent and turn from wickedness, then we miss out on refreshment and blessing. Think of the small areas of your life. Think of the way that sin wearies you. Think of those things that we go back to over and over and over again because we think somehow that's going to satisfy or make better or bring more into. Think of the weariness and the weight that that brings to our lives. The Bible's right. I don't need to defend it. It's right. And Peter would discover that. Right, Peter was like being faithful. And I'm sure that at the end of this, Peter felt blessed and refreshed. He went God's way. I know the dude who was healed felt blessed and refreshed. Whenever in our lives we choose to go God's way instead of our own way that's counter to his way, we will experience refreshment and blessing from God. And I think as people, we need that. And that is found in Jesus. So, Whose experience from that day most resonates with you today? Peter and his faithful witness? The man and his walking past his old way of life into newness with God's people? Or the crowd hearing this great news, this promise of refreshing and blessing? Wherever you are today, who do you most identify with? Peter or the man or the crowd? Well, do something about it, man. Maybe you need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus so the refreshment of forgiveness comes to you today. You can do that. It's just a simple prayer in your heart. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know it now. Please forgive me of my sins. I am yours. And he'll do that. Maybe you're like the man and you've experienced the power of God. You've been saved. But man, you keep getting stuck at that same old lame place. 
Let's walk together as a people of God into the promises of God today out of those lame places. And maybe you're like Peter and God's moving in the community around you and you just need to be faithful in the moment. The power of the Holy Ghost is available to us to be faithful in those moments. Let's pray. God, help us as your people to be ready to serve you at any time. Always dependent upon the power and the person of the Holy Spirit and not ourselves. Help us to live liberated light and joyful lives because of what you've done for us. Teach us to be like the man who in his newfound state was leaping and praising God. Holy Spirit, help us to remember all that we have to be thankful for today and to praise you. And also, God, help your people today with our deep places of shame and guilt. Those places where we are weary and feel as though we are under a curse. Jesus, you became a curse for us that we might have the blessing of new life in you. Teach us to forsake our sins and to follow you and to live refreshed, blessed lives for the glory of Jesus as we walk together as his people.